2: Strap on your parachute. It's time for what goes up with Sarah Ponzek and Mike Regan.
3: Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponzek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team.
4: And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg.
3: This week on the show, goodbye 2020, hello 2021. We'll recap what drove markets in the crazy year that was, discuss where we stand now, and look ahead to the new year. Spoiler alert, our guest shares the key thing the market is missing. He says the old adage, don't fight the Fed, is on its last legs.
4: Well, Sarah, thank goodness, 2020 is on its last legs, as you point out. Goodbye, 20. I never thought we'd we'd live to see the day when this year the year ended. Uh,
3: it's the year that felt like two decades. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and
4: we'll of course close out the show today with our tradition: the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. Sarah, I'm gonna give you a little a little teaser on mine. It's something for the crypto aficionados out there. I know we have a few of them in in the listenership. And I feel like we don't give them the content they crave. So my crazy th- thing this week is is crypto. Well, I, I
3: will say, I don't think we've been able to go through the last five episodes or so without mentioning crypto. So crypto aficionados that do listen to the podcast, you're welcome.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Cannot be avoided. Made made itself unavoidable. But uh, this week on the show, uh, a new guest for us. We're very happy to have him. Uh, he was uh, the strategist for a long time at Kenner Fitzgerald. He this year started his own firm called Alpha Omega Advisors. He's the CEO and founder of that firm. His name is Peter Cettini. Peter, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me, Mike and Sarah.
4: So, Peter, let's let's start with that. You know, I, I think a lot of our listeners will re- remember you as the uh, strategist at at Kanner, But what's uh, tell us about Alpha Omega Advisors, the, the what you started this year, this project?
0: Yeah, it's it's been an awful lot of fun. Um, you know, uh, it's an independent research and advisory firm, um, and uh, it's it's enabled me to uh, focus on uh, a number of my passions um, to do a bit of a bit more writing on topics. Uh, that weren't necessarily um, of interest to institutional clients, um, albeit um, many of those clients are obviously uh, consumers of my research. Uh, I've also partnered with um, uh, Rosa and Rubini, which is Nouriel Rubini's firm. Uh, I do quite a bit of writing for them as well. I am writing a book uh, and I'm having a wonderful time uh, doing doing that. So, uh, I've also I'm sitting on a number of boards right now, which has been a lot of fun. Um, one in particular called Incino is a clean energy firm uh, which does environmental testing um, and providing a bunch of advisory work uh, on a bespoke basis to both hedge funds as well as to companies. Okay.
4: The book, I assume, that's a romance novel.
0: Yes, yes, it is. It is. It's all about my romance with the Federal Reserve.
3: <laughs> it's what we all need. It's what we all need right now. <laughs> well, well, Peter, congratulations on it all. Uh, absolutely, I, I would. I imagine it's been quite the year to go off on your own uh, in many ways. Uh, and I was actually hoping that we could start by reflecting and looking back. At 2020, I keep saying, but I feel as though... If you had told someone what was going to happen at the start of the year, that we were going to see the unemployment rate shoot higher, that people are going to be stuck at home, what businesses were going to have to deal with, uh, and maybe left out what happened with the Federal Reserve, what happened with fiscal policy, it would have been really hard to imagine the performance that we saw across financial markets in 2020. So I was hoping you could just run us through why it is that we've been able to see this unbelievable performance really eye popping performance across the board in 2020 uh, and and just get us caught up to, to where we stand now
0: yeah well, well well like every like everybody else i have my two cents certainly to share um <laughs> i'm not sure how uh how much insight frankly that <laughs> that uh that that it provides but you know i i think you know coming coming into the year i think that's a good place to start because one of the reasons I've been so uh, surprised by the ferocity of the rally um, was because of what I perceived as being a rather weak backdrop coming into the year. And so I I actually came into the year um, pretty cautious. And, um, you know, few remember, but, you know, not to go back too far uh, beyond investors' memories, but, but, you know, at the end of 2018, there was quite a bit of of, uh, equity market volatility, which was prompted by 10 year yields rising above 3%, uh, you know, 10 year yield went to three and a quarter equity markets just, just could not tolerate yields, uh, at that level. Um, the fed was then, uh, forced in a way to act by the treasury market with, uh, a yield curve inversion, both from three months to 10 year. And then eventually a little later in the year from two years to 10 years, um, manifesting and, you know, the fed hates it when, um, the ten-year uh, yield is below Fed funds, right? So they're almost forced to cut when that happens because it's so bad for banks. Um, and we saw loan volume um, beginning to to contract into the end of 2019. And we saw you know flat earnings for the S and P 500, deeply negative earnings for small caps, and corporate earnings overall for both private and public companies down you know well over five percent. So my view was that 2020 was going to be a rocky year to begin with. And I think you know one of the most one of the most surprising things for this year. I know we're going to get to this t- topic a little later, was the fact that in some ways the pandemic um, actually forestalled, I think, a number of the defaults that would have happened in its absence because of the ferocity of the policy response on the, both the monetary policy side um, and especially on the fiscal policy side, and the use of Section thirteen three under the Federal Reserve Act to, um, as I've written, uh, to wed the Fed to the Treasury. Um, so, so I'll stop there. But but I think that was the backdrop we came into the year with. And, and, and lastly, I guess, you know, look, at about 2,400 on the S&P 500, I, I did feel the market was oversold and became somewhat constructive because, because of the policy response that, that I expected. But you know, uh, in late June, early July, I, I really became quite cautious because I just felt there was too much uncertainty to propel the rally uh, much further. And that that obviously was was not correct. So,
4: Peter, let's uh, get you up to date now with, with how you're seeing the market now. I, I was reading some uh, notes you sent over to Sarah and I. Um, one line you say is, uh, I remain tactically bullish uh, based on sentiment and flows near term, but the bull narrative is about as hollow as I've ever heard it. I think that makes sort of a lot of logical sense that, you know, you can't really fight this tape. It's it's a it's a market that just wants to keep powering higher, uh, whether it be sort of irrational, euphoric retail uh, flow or or whatever's causing it. But how do you position for for this type of environment? I mean, I, I agree with you that it seems like. Um, you know, at some point the the bull narrative is only going to take us so far, and that there will be kind of a a, a come to earth moment. Um, the tricky part to me, and, and correct me if if you think I'm wrong, but I I feel like those corrections can be so fast. You know, you you wake up one morning and and the futures are already down two or three percent. And you've kind of missed that opportunity to, to take profits if, if that's what you wanted to do. So is it a matter of sort of hedging it out uh, with options or some some volatility futures or something and, and and otherwise remaining fully invested? How exactly would you sort of position yourself in, in this type of environment?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's it's incredibly difficult and it has been for a number of months, given the uncertainties. Right. And I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about the political environment that that makes it even uh, more Tricky, if you will, and, and balancing those things. Um, you know, it, the the tactical uh, bullishness that I sort of adopted um, just before Thanksgiving was a sort of, you know, a hands in the air kind of moment. Because you know, there are times when, uh, you know, when you're playing when you're playing chess and everyone else is playing checkers, you're, you're actually you're the fool, right? So you ha- you have to recognize um, when we're when, you know, an obsession about things like earnings, growth, um, when when that is just less important than the narratives that are driving uh, the markets. And for me, I didn't feel like there was anything to derail the narrative that the vaccines were here, um, that that growth was going to pick back up, uh, which which it has. Um, although, strangely enough, market has continued to rally, even with some of the data coming out, you know, Rather weakly, in my in my view, um, notwithstanding the PMI that came out, but you know, to to fight that, it felt I, I've lived through these I've lived through several cycles, and um, you know, this this one feels a lot like 1999. I, I remember asking myself how uh, you know companies that had you know no almost no earnings uh, or or negative cash flow, pardon me, and almost no revenues. You know, could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and okay, it's not a perfect analogy, but from a sentiment standpoint, it does feel quite the same. And I think you had a lot of new entrants into the market then, um, vis-a-vis back in the days, Mike. You and I might remember, um, not to exclude you, Sarah, but I think we're okay. older than, older <laughs> than now. Um, Peter, you're blowing my lid. You're you're blowing my uh, lid
4: here. All these listeners thought trying I was... to get
3: off as a millennial. I, I had all the
4: listeners convinced I was 25. Darn it. It's not a good thing, Sarah.
0: It's not a good thing. But, you know, living through that period, you know, it feels very similar to it where there was a new, a new set of investors entering the market, you know, and if, you know, that you would trade stocks on your uh, E-Trade account, which was the, you know, the, the, the early mover then um, on your PC and your big CRT screen and, and, You know, and that made a difference, and I think that added to the froth then. And I think you've got a similar dynamic going on now. Um, I was look, I was keen to it um, as early as September of nineteen when I wrote a piece called "The Robin Hood Rally," and in that piece, I talked about these new entrants, and I also talked about how rates are actually not necessarily a great justification for high higher PE multiples, which sets up this answer a little bit as well. And we can talk about that later if it makes sense, but. To to get to your question, how do you position yourself? It's very difficult to hedge the book right now. Um, When you look at the options volatility surfaces on almost any index, and and the cyclical rally in particular, and the Russell rally in particular, seems uh, way overdone. Um, It's very hard to buy put options. And so what you have to do is engage in more sophisticated strategies that really do require a, a delta view or a view on direction in the underlying, which is precisely what you generally try to avoid when you're buying volatility, right? And what I mean by that is the only way to really, you know, to, to fund a Russell strategy is to sell a call to buy a put or a put spread, so that you're selling a little bit of volatility to, to, to fund your downside protection, and you know, you're making a directional bet that, that, that it's a lot more directional than if you're just buying a Russell put, for example. And the same is true for the S&P. So hedging is extremely difficult right now. If you're very long, obviously, you can sell calls to, to, to sort of overwrite your portfolio. And so I think that is a good strategy uh, for those who are long, for those who are underinvested already. Uh, the premium burn from just buying expensive put options is, is probably too much to tolerate. So that's that's difficult. Um, you know, I, I think being a little bit heavier in cash makes sense here. Um, I do still like gold. Um, and you know, I'm, I, I, you know, IG is a good place to hide, but you're just not getting a heck of a lot of yield. So, I mean, that's sort of how I'm positioned, right? I, you know, uh, you own some investment grade credit, things going to continue to get support from the treasury and the fed. Um, but I wouldn't be dipping my toe into high yield. I think that's a, that's a chase that's going to end poorly. Uh, at the SP, SP ratings is predicting a 9% prospective uh, default rate for 2021. And yet, uh, you know, we have some of the lowest absolute yields and high yield um, that we've ever seen.
2: Com.
0: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
3: You know, this brings me to another line that you wrote that that I really loved. And I'm going to read it verbatim because I'm sure if I, I curse on the podcast, I'll get in a lot of trouble uh, <laughs> from my bosses. But uh, buy the bull star and sign dash T uh, for a trade into Christmas on Fun Flows, but don't buy into the nonsense narr- nonsense narratives permanently. And this leads me to ask you, Would you say that at least some pockets of the market are in a bubble? I mean, we've seen the Nasdaq 100 more than double now in a year's time span. We've seen a SPAC boom. We see the IPO market just on fire. Uh, As you mentioned, we've seen a retail trading phenomenon, even uh, taking advantage of the option market. One, are we in a bubble? And two, even if we are, what can you do about that? Because bubbles, as we all know, can, can last for a long time until they don't.
0: Yeah, they, they, they most certainly can. So, you know, bubbles are about context, right? It was interesting, um, you know, for those of us nerds, and I know you guys are, are just like me and you're nerds about this stuff too. So <laughs> we, you know, we listened to Chairman Powell in his press conference, and he pointed to the Fed model, right? He said, You know, equities actually don't look all that rich when taking into account the fact that um, rates are as low as they are. And, um, you know, in 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 the notes that I sent to you and in a piece I put out, you know, I quoted Bill Dudley. And, you know, he said, you know, know, I'll, I'll quote him. "The Stimulus provided by lower interest rates inevitably wears off. Cutting interest rates boosts the economy by bringing future activity into the present. Easy money encourages people to buy houses and appliances now rather than later. But when the future arrives, that activity is missing. The only way to keep things going is to lower interest rates further until that is they hit their lower bound, which in the US is zero. And that's Bill Dudley, not me. And that's a very incomplete description of how monetary policy works, but it's, it's good enough for, for, for our conversation. So especially in that context, right? In the context of the fact that the Fed can't lower rates anymore and that we're really reliant, I think, on fiscal policy, um, I think equities look rich uh, as a general matter. Um, and you know, more, moreover, um, when when we're talking about why rates are low, rates were already quite low coming into the pandemic uh, because activity was already slowing, because there was so little inflation, I think the Fed has has proven its inability to stimulate inflation. In fact, Um, One of the things I'm writing about in my book and I've written about in pieces over time is the fact that the Fed has actually created the disinflationary environment to some extent by creating overinvestment, um, which leads to difficulty for firms in getting price. And when you can't get price, uh, profitability suffers. And when profitability suffers, you can't raise, raise workers' wages, which is at the end of the day what the Fed really cares most about. So back to the bubble question. Are there areas of the market that are uh, in a bubble? Yeah, clearly. Um, and I think small caps right now have went from somewhat uh, oversold to wildly overbought um, because I do not see how earnings are to come back for cyclical companies. There are clearly bubbles in tech. I actually have a sort of proprietary basket of, of 10 companies that I've been watching for, for a while. And um, they are way into bubble, uh, uh, territory. And the way that I'm not going to name names for those companies for obvious reasons, but the way I typically look at that is I, I look at companies with negative cash flow and I look at the multiple of revenue. So it's a basket of negative cash flow companies that's trading at multiples of revenue above 10 times. And um, not only the number of companies like that uh, at at some of the highest levels I've ever seen, but the multiple multiples of revenues have expanded well above 10 times in many cases. So Yes. And many of those are obviously speculative technology companies.
4: Peter, I, I love that analogy you used uh, just now. You said, um, you know, sometimes when you're playing chess and the rest of the market is playing checkers, you're, you're the one that can end up looking bad. And you know, I obviously this was a big year for for checkers players in the in the market, uh, even Scrabble players, as uh, Dave <laughs> Portnoy uh, was famously picking letters out of a Scrabble bag to to pick uh, stock tickers. I, you know, now we have this another jolt of fiscal spending coming, you know, as we record this, it, you know, we still don't know if it'll be six hundred dollars or two thousand dollar checks sent out to to most Americans um, I know you've paid a lot of attention to sort of the Dave Portnoy's of the world this year and and done a lot of thinking about it. Does this fiscal uh, spending that's coming now, this this sort of, you know, checks in the mail, um, is it going to be off to the races again in the market? I mean, is that enough to sort of uh, get us rallying again? Uh, you know, fundamentals be damned just you know, b- grab those Scrabble letters out of the bag and, and start picking stocks again. Uh, is, do you, do you think that's a risk?
0: Man, I wish I could answer that. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I'll tell, I, I will, I will, I'll give it a shot, Mike. Um, yeah. That's I'll all we have. That's,
4: that's the best we can ask for. It. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so if we remember, you know, uh, for a look for a while, the, the stimulus package that just passed was expected, you know, quite a bit earlier. The, the 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 conversation was: is it coming before the election? Is it not coming before the election? Right. And you know, my view was it likely wasn't going to come before the election, and that that probably wasn't going to be all that good for equities. That turned out not to be the case, right? At the end of the day, no one really cared. Um, I think the mistake I made there was that there continued to be. Uh, knock-on effects from the previous uh, stimulus package. And when you look at money supply, money supply, there's a couple of things. Money supply actually does not expand um, in the way many people think it does in response to monetary policy. It just, it simply doesn't, because monetary policy is actually not a money phenomenon the way many think. It's an interest rates phenomenon. Fiscal policy, on the other hand, when you deposit money into people's checking accounts that by definition right, increases the money supply. And a lot of that additional liquidity uh, in in a real way went into the stock market. Um, And that persisted for quite a bit longer, I think, than many people thought. And I think what it suggested was that the amount of stimulus that came out of the first package uh, was actually more effective than many of us believed it would be. Um, and so that, you know, that leads me to the, my assessment of the second stimulus package, which is that $2,000 is a ludicrously large uh, amount. Um, and it, you know, we can get into the political motivations behind it, but it's just, it's, uh, I don't necessarily think that's a great thing. And I hate to agree with Lawrence Summers, um, but, but I will in this case and, and say, you know, it's, it's just not, it's not warranted. Um, so will that drive equities higher if you get a $2,000 check, you know, Mike, it might. Uh, it, it indeed, it indeed, it, it could, um, and which to me would increase the risk to the market all the more, because when the liquidity finally does run out after we come back to a sense of normalcy sometime late next year, um, you know that that the, the the rug will be pulled out from under the market. Uh, the question is just kind of when that happens, and uh, you know what are the risks to this new strain and, and lots of other things. But but yeah, I mean that that's clearly one of the things that could drive these drive these markets higher.
2: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
0: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I,
3: I just pulled up some data from this company, InvestNet Yodli, which is a data aggregator on how the stimulus checks were put to use in the markets the first time. Just for some background, listen to these numbers. So people earning between $35,000 and $75,000 a year increased stock trading by 90% more than the prior week after receiving their stimulus check. And then those making between 100 and 150K increased trading by 82%. And those uh, that earned more than 150K traded about 50% more often. So if you look at these numbers, it is pretty unbelievable. And there is data that shows that it it did have an effect on on people trading more often and getting into the market. Uh, But I also want to circle back, Peter, to, to a point that you made early on in the conversation, that being that before... COVID-19 hit, before any of us knew that we were going to be dealing with the pandemic this year, that we didn't necessarily have a very strong setup coming into 2020. And like you said, it feels like a lot of people forget that. And I've been looking at uh, analyst earnings estimates for the S&P 500 for 2021, looking for $167 a share. I mean, you're right in the ballpark again of the prior year uh, when we were at peak earnings, uh, 22% earnings growth. From your perspective, are are people losing sight of where we were coming from, the base that we were coming from before even dealing with this recession, the bear market, COVID-19, um, to all of a sudden assume that it's going to be off to the races again?
0: Yes. I, I mean, most certainly, in my opinion, um, that that's one of the things that that just doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me. Um, the trajectory on the way in. Uh, was, as as you just laid it out, fairly weak. And so you know, some of the earnings estimates that I'm seeing, as you said, this consensus is just below 170, um, are going to require multiples that just don't make a lot of sense to me within the context of the fact that rates can't go any lower. So if we're looking for multiple expansion to continue to drive the rally, um, I don't think we're going to get that because uh, the Fed's Uh, efficacy is limited, right? It can, it has firepower. No one's saying the Fed doesn't have ammunition. It can print money and it can go buy treasuries uh, uh, for as as long as it would like. Um, But at the end of the day, when you're at zero, uh, that's the stimulative impact uh, is, is muted because you can't push it below zero, at least, well, you can, we know rates can go negative, (laughs) but Studies have shown that negative rates really actually don't do a heck of a lot. And the Fed has stated pretty clearly it doesn't want to go there. So I, I think, yes, I think that is one huge piece that people are missing. We're not just back to, you know, this to the moon uh, scenario for earnings. If, if anything, we're back to a situation where um, cash flows remain challenged. And by the way, debt levels have exploded. Um, and many of your reporters have done a pretty good job following this, that they're now $2 trillion of, I think, what have been characterized as zombie companies where, uh, you know, many of these are larger companies where uh, earnings uh, or cash flows don't cover interest. And of course the counter argument to that is immediately, well, we're talking about a pandemic here. Uh, You know, earnings are going to get better, but I would say we can't count on that. And, And that's to me with this extra debt load, why I think S&P um, is rightly pointing out that default rates should increase considerably in 2021. Yeah, you write
4: that, uh, I guess, S&P expects um, speculative, speculative grade default rates increased uh, to 9% by 2021 from 6.3 uh, this September. Um, you're thinking even higher to, to something like 12%. Um, you know, it's interesting to me because that those defaults, tend to sort of lag the the economic downturn to to some degree I guess um so we we still could be facing this this wave of defaults even as the the economy starts rebounding next year has the fed basically you know inoculated the credit markets though with these programs this year were how do you see that all working out uh for the rest of the year you know will the fed be able to to basically keep the the corporate bond market calm, even if these default rates uh, spike up a little bit.
0: Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, another question, obviously, to which I do do not have an answer, but only an opinion. Um, that's that we're in the business of giving opinions, I suppose. But but look, sometimes, sometimes the the default cycle leads the downturn and at other times it lags. I, I agree with you on that. So the question here becomes, does the default cycle, uh, to some extent, uh, catalyze a second slowdown? Um, and does it catalyze a second slowdown because of the reason for, uh, the default cycle, which is that earnings are failing to grow. And I actually happen to think that that may be the case now this, this in turn hinges on a rather esoteric topic, which I'm sure many of your listeners are, are, are focused on, but it, it really depends whether or not the Fed's emergency powers, if you will, that's not the technical term, but whether or not it can use the exigent circumstances exception under Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act to continue to work with Treasury. And again, Treasury has to agree to it and fund these special perfect purpose vehicles with first lost capital which is then in turn used to extend these loans, uh, okay? And these, these loans for the primary and secondary um, lending facilities are really just sort of tarp in disguise. They just decided not to call it that this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question becomes, will those programs which are supposed to be emergent or emergency exigent, right? That's the language of the Federal Reserve Act. Do they become more permanent? And interestingly enough, during the most pan- the re- recent um, pandemic relief pack- package, Uh, Patrick Toomey actually stuck up his hand and said, you know, I I want this to to change. Um, So so there are those in the legislature that that legislature that are aware of this issue Um, and whether or not the investing public becomes confident that there will be a permanent backstop in the credit markets and the corporate credit markets will clearly weigh on how risk uh, plays and whether or not that default cycle Um, is dead forever or not? You know, if it is dead forever, then I think we unfortunately have a situation where our system of capitalism is dead. Because I think without some level of default and recession, you know, that price discovery mechanism just doesn't work anymore. So you're, you're, you're begging a very deep philosophical question, which in fact is the, is the topic of the book that I'm undertaking.
3: Well, uh, oh. to be seen. And Mike loves philosophical questions. I
0: I do. I
4: like the teaser on the book too. That was well well done. You, you got he snuck that in there. Well, like, we can't wait for the book. I guess uh, sometime in twenty twenty one. Can we expect it? Yes, with that, with with any with any luck. Okay, good. Well, we'll have to have you back on uh, when it's out, and we'll uh, we'll do a little book club, little Oprah Oprah's book club. Love it. Hopefully, I get her done. <laughs> But uh, with the death of capitalism, Sarah, I think that's our cue to, to move into the, the crazy things.
3: What, what, what a cue.
4: <laughs> Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. So why don't you get us started, Sarah? What's the craziest thing you saw this week?
3: So I actually wanted to share one uh, from a listener first. We got uh, an instant Bloomberg from Kendall Bolt over at Bank of America Securities. Uh, He missed the cutoff for last week's episode, I'll admit, just by a hair. But I wanted to include it this week because it is pretty crazy. Um, So what he points out is that if you look at QuantumScape, now this is a Bill Gates-backed electric vehicle startup. But the spread between the stock price and the warrant price right now is about $75 the stock price has gone from under $12 at the beginning of November to around $129 today at the time of his writing me. Uh, and then he says, this isn't a small SPAC with market cap of around $45 billion now. And the cost to currently short the stock in the lending market is around minus 900%. So just wild dislocations. Uh, and again, fits into the idea, the narrative of of the SPAC boom that we've seen this year.
4: Wait, the cost to borrow is minus is negative 900 percent. This
3: is what he said. That's
4: uh, I think I want to borrow that one. I don't don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to sell it. I'm just going to borrow it and give it back. (laughs) That's that's pretty fascinating, though. Yeah. All right. uh, Peter, you got anything crazy for us this week?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, I I never thought I'd live to see the day when President Trump was on the same page as Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) (laughs) I think that wins. I think
4: that
3: wins.
4: (laughs) I think you're right. Uh, Who would have thought? Talk about a crazy ending to a crazy year. But here we are. (laughs) Here we are. That's pretty good. All right. I got one uh, as promised for our crypto and aficionados, I guess, is the proper term. Not enthusiast, aficionado. Yeah,
3: aficionado is the right one, Mike. All right, I'm
4: going to read you two headlines here, Sarah. One is from Coindesk.com. And it says, Carolina Panthers' Russell Okung becomes the first NFL player to be paid in Bitcoin. I saw this. Unbelievable. It's pretty interesting. Now, here's the headline from The Verge, another website. No NFL player, Russell Okung, is not being paid in Bitcoin. So, all right, what the discrepancy is... This guy wanted to get paid in Bitcoin. He, he tweeted out in 2019, "Pay me in Bitcoin." And he's a real sort of crypto enthusiast. He's a computer aficionado. Guy. Aficionado, yes. Uh, interesting guy. He goes to to classes, to high schools and stuff, and and talks to their software coding club rather than the football team. And he and he says, "All right, I want one of you guys to be the next uh, creator of Facebook." So, uh, an interesting uh, NFL player, uh, offensive lineman. Um, but the, the discrepancy is because, all right, he's getting paid by the Panthers in U.S. dollars. And there's some service uh, with the company's called Zap and their product is called Strike. And it basically intercepts the payment from the NFL team and converts half of it to Bitcoin and gives him half in dollars and, and uh, half of his pay in Bitcoin. Maybe not the craziest thing, but I think it's an interesting uh, sort of. Part of the evolution of Bitcoin, if all of a sudden pro athletes are asking to be paid in Bitcoin and, and there's a service that actually converts half their pay instantly uh, into Bitcoin, I, I, it makes you wonder about, you know, this rally we've seen in crypto. And, you know, you're, you're always trying to figure out what's driving it. But uh, this guy behind this app says that uh, other professional athletes, including he won't name them, but he says some members of the Brooklyn Nets and the Yankees are on board with that, this app too. So they presumably will start getting some of their pay in Bitcoin. Pretty interesting, Sarah. I don't know. I don't know if it's the craziest thing, but definitely one of the more interesting things.
3: Very interesting. And Peter, you said that uh, asking you about Bitcoin was fair game. So as I'm looking at my terminal right now, I see it <laughs> knocking on the door of $28,000 again. So wh- what's your view? Um,
0: You know, I, I certainly no, no offense to the, the athlete in question, um, but I think if we're relying on professional athletes uh, to set the uh, to set the stage for what's uh, what's smart business practice, I think we're we're going to be disappointed. Um, look, I think Bitcoin coin is is an incredible story, and what I've come to sort of believe about it is that it, it is really born of a desire to go back to. Uh, the days of old. It's sort of, of of what's it's an it's what's new is old sort of story because back in the day when the dollar was pegged to gold, there was reserve scarcity. That reserve scarcity came from a limited amount of gold. And what is Bitcoin? It's a I, I would call it, you know, fictitiously in some sense created reserve scarcity situation because only a certain amount of of, of coin can be created. Now, so I think that's really interesting. And I think that's a, maybe an interesting way to take, to, to take it. It's also a currency substitute, right? Because with rates at zero, you're not getting paid to her, hold the currency anymore, right? Um, whether it's in short treasuries or longer dated treasuries, um, which is also the argument for gold. So from those standpoints, it's interesting and it's being adopted. And, and, you know, who's to argue with that? That said, I think where the argument falls apart is that lots of different crypto can be created over time. I mean, Bitcoin doesn't have a monopoly on crypto. So that reserve scarcity sort of argument falls to pieces. And at the end of the day, I mean, I, I hate to be, you know, the old man in the room here, but I, I just see it as a speculative instrument that people are trying to make excuses about um, as a legitimate um, instrument. Uh, but let's just call it what it is. It's a great way to speculate. Uh, yeah. And I wish I had owned more of it. Um, frankly, uh, that that's the bottom line. You know, I wasn't smart enough to to, to figure out what it was going to become, uh, as it was becoming it. Uh, but but I don't think we should again. We shouldn't fool ourselves that it's something that it's not just because it's working now.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think it all circles back to that exactly, like you said, that speculative nature. That those, you know, Davy uh, day traders of the world uh, just watching watching the chart and and and. Trading based on momentum and and whatever else, and fundamentals be darned, I guess, for now.
0: That can happen for a while.
3: And you hear $400,000 calls, and you really don't want to miss out on that if that's the next big thing, right? (laughs) All right. I'm not going to cut myself loose, though. I'm going to hold myself true, Mike. I do have one this week. Um, So this is just uh, 2020 in a nutshell. Listen to this headline: Sustainability SPAC. Queen's Gambit Growth Capital fires for a $225 million (laughs) IPO now. I think you guys really teed me up for this one, talking about chess and checkers earlier on uh, in the podcast. But you get a combination of SPACs, you get a combination of the Queen's Gambit, which I must say was one of my best quarantine shows to watch. What what could be better, right?
4: Something for everyone. (laughs) Yeah, something
3: for everyone.
4: everyone. (laughs) That's amazing. When is that IPO?
3: Uh... Let me see if I can pull it up right here. Uh, so it says they filed uh, on Tuesday of this week uh, with the SEC to raise up to two hundred twenty-five million in an IPO. I don't see. Oh, may, yeah, maybe a they have date. an announcement. Yeah I, yeah, I don't see um, a date yet. All uh, right, yet. we don't have the effective date yet.
4: We'll have but. to circle back on that one. That's that's pretty good. That that <laughs> boy, it, it's like you, you think you hear the the bell ringing for the top, Peter, and it just keeps getting crazier. What? Uh, what you're hearing, I mean, the the, the Queen's Gambit's back. <laughs> All
0: That's right, a
3: good one. <laughs> 2020. Leave well, I mean that alone, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin is fair game. Queen's Gambit's back. Not. Well, with
4: that, Sarah, I think our gambit here is over as well. Uh, Peter Cessini, thank you so much for joining the show. We really appreciated it. Uh, good luck with the book, and and we'll have to talk to you again when it comes out next year.
0: Thanks a lot, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Sarah. Talk to you soon.
3: What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.